Chapter sixty one of Louise de la Valliere. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumont. Chapter sixty one Wounds Within Wounds. Mademoiselle de la Valliere, for it was indeed she, advanced a few steps towards him. Yes, Louise, she murmured. But this interval, short as it had been, was quite sufficient for Raoul to recover himself. You, mademoiselle, he said, and then added in an indefinite tone, You here? Yes, Raoul, the young girl replied. I have been waiting for you. I beg your pardon. When I came into the room, I was not aware. I know, but I entreated Olivain not to tell you. She hesitated, and as Raoul did not attempt to interrupt her, a moment's silence ensued, during which the sound of their throbbing hearts might have been heard, not in unison with each other, but the one beating as violently as the other. It was for Louise to speak, and she made an effort to do so. "'I wish to speak to you,' she said. "'It was absolutely necessary that I should see you, myself, alone. I have not hesitated to adopt a step which must remain secret.' for no one except yourself could understand my motive monsieur de brazalon in 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 fact mademoiselle raoul stammered out almost breathless from emotion as far as i am concerned and despite the good opinion you have of me i confess will you do me the great kindness to sit down and listen to me said louise interrupting him with her soft sweet voice brazalon looked at her for a moment then mournfully shaking his head he sat or rather fell down on a chair speak he said she cast a glance all around her this look was a timid entreaty and implored secrecy far more effectually than her expressed words had done a few minutes before raoul rose and went to the door which he opened olivain he said i am not within for any one and then turning towards louise he added is not that what you wished Nothing could have produced a greater effect upon Louise than these few words, which seemed to signify, You see that I still understand you. She passed a handkerchief across her eyes in order to remove a rebellious tear which she could not restrain, and then, having collected herself for a moment, she said, Raoul, do not turn your kind frank look away from me. You are not one of those men who despise a woman for having given her heart to another, even though her affection may render him unhappy or might wound his pride. Raoul did not reply. Alas, continued La Valliere, it is only too true. My cause is a bad one, and I cannot tell in what way to begin. It will be better for me, I think, to relate to you, very simply, everything that has befallen me. As I shall speak but the pure and simple truth, I shall always find my path clear before me in spite of the obscurity and obstacles which I have to brave in order to solace my heart which is full to overflowing, and wishes to pour itself out at your feet. Raoul continued to preserve the same unbroken silence. La Valliere looked at him with an air that seemed to say, Encourage me, for pity's sake, but a single word. But Raoul did not open his lips, and the young girl was obliged to continue. Just now, she said, Monsieur de Saint-Aignan came to me by the king's direction. She cast down her eyes as she said this, while Raoul, on his side, 
turned his away in order to avoid looking at her. Monsieur de Saint-Aignan came to me from the king, she repeated, and told me that you knew all. And she attempted to look Raoul in the face after afflicting this further wound upon him in addition to the many others he had already received. But it was impossible to meet Raoul's eyes. He told me you were incensed with me, and justly so, I admit. This time Raoul looked at the young girl, and a smile full of disdain passed across his lips. Oh, she continued, I entreat you, do not say that you have had any other feeling against me than that of anger merely. Raoul, wait until I have told you all. Wait until I have said to you all that I had to say, all that I came to say. Raoul, by the strength of his iron will, forced his features to assume a calmer expression, and the disdainful smile upon his lips passed away. In the first place, said La Valliere, in the first place, with my hands raised in entreaty towards you, with my forehead bowed to the ground before you, I entreat you, as the most generous, as the noblest of men, to pardon, to forgive me. If I have left you in ignorance of what was passing in my own bosom, never, at least, would I have consented to deceive you. Oh, I entreat you, Raoul, I implore you on my knees, answer me one word, even though you wrong me in doing so. Better, far better, an injurious word from your lips than suspicion resting in your heart. I admire your subtlety of expression, mademoiselle, said Raoul, making an effort to remain calm. To leave another in ignorance that you are deceiving him is loyal, but to deceive him, it seems that would be very wrong, and that you would not do it. Monsieur, for a long time I thought that I loved you better than anything else, and so long as I believed in my affection for you, I told you that I loved you. I could have sworn it on the altar, but a day came when I was undeceived. Well, on that day, mademoiselle, knowing that I still continue to love you, true loyalty of conduct should have forced you to inform me you had ceased to love me. But on that day, Raoul, on that day, when I read in the depths of my own heart, when I confessed to myself that you no longer filled my mind entirely, when I saw another future before me than that of being your friend, your lifelong companion, your wife, on that day, Raoul, you were not, alas, any more beside me. But you knew where I was, mademoiselle. You could have written to me. Raoul, I did not dare to do so. Raoul, I have been weak and cowardly. I knew you so thoroughly, I knew how devotedly you loved me, that I trembled at the bare idea of the grief I was about to cause you. And that is so, Raoul, that this very moment I am now speaking to you, bending thus before you, my heart crushed in my bosom, my voice full of sighs, my eyes full of tears. It is so perfectly true that I have no other defense than my frankness. I have no other sorrow greater than that which I read in your eyes. Raoul attempted to smile. No, said the young girl with a profound conviction. No, no, you will not do me so foul a wrong as to disguise your feelings before me now. You loved me. You were sure of your affection for me. You did not deceive yourself. You do not lie to your own heart. Whilst I, I, and pale as death, her arms thrown despairingly above her head, she fell upon her knees. Whilst you, said Raoul. You told me you loved me, and yet you loved another. Alas, yes, cried the poor girl. Alas, yes, I do love another, and that other 
Oh, for heaven's sake, let me say it, Raoul, for it is my only excuse, that other I love better than my own life, better than my own soul, even. Forgive my fault, or punish my treason, Raoul. I came here in no way to defend myself, but merely to say to you, you know what it is to love. In such a case am I. I love to that degree that I would give my life, my very soul, to the man I love. If he should ever cease to love me, I shall die of grief and despair unless heaven come to my assistance, unless heaven does show pity upon me. Raoul, I came here to submit myself to your will, whatever it might be, to die if it were your wish I should die. Kill me then, Raoul, if in your heart you believe I deserve death. Take care, mademoiselle, said Raoul. The woman who invites death is one who has nothing but her heart's blood to offer to her deceived and betrayed lover. You are right, she said. Raoul uttered a deep sigh as he exclaimed, And you love without being able to forget? I love without a wish to forget, without a wish ever to love anyone else, replied La Valliere. Very well, said Raoul. You have said to me, in fact, all you had to say, all I could possibly wish to know. And now, mademoiselle, it is I who ask your forgiveness, for it is I who have been almost an obstacle in your life. I, too, who have been wrong, for, in deceiving myself, I helped to deceive you. Oh, said La Valliere, I do not ask you so much as that, Raoul. I only am to blame, mademoiselle, continued Raoul, Better informed than yourself of the difficulties of this life, I should have enlightened you. I ought not to have relied upon uncertainty. I ought to have extracted an answer from your heart, whilst I hardly even sought an acknowledgment from your lips. Once more, mademoiselle, it is I who ask your forgiveness. Impossible! Impossible! she cried. You are mocking me! How impossible! Yes, it is impossible to be so good and kind. Ah, how perfect is such a degree as that! Take care, said Raoul with a bitter smile, for presently you may say perhaps I did not love you. Oh, you love me like an affectionate brother. Let me hope that, Raoul. As a brother? Undeceive yourself, Louise. I love you as a lover, as a husband, with the deepest, the truest, the fondest affection. Raoul! Raoul! as a brother. Oh, Louise, I love you so deeply that I would have shed my blood for you drop by drop. I would, oh, how willingly, have suffered myself to be torn to pieces for your sake, have sacrificed my very future for you. I love you so deeply, Louise, that my heart feels dead and crushed within me. My faith in human nature all is gone. My eyes have lost their light. I loved you so deeply that I now no longer see, think of, care of, anything, either in this world or the next. Raoul, dear Raoul, spare me, I implore you, cried La Valliere. Oh, if I had but known. It is too late, Louise. You love, you are happy in your affection. I read your happiness through your tears, behind the tears which the loyalty of your nature makes you shed. I feel the sighs your affection breathes forth. Louise, Louise, you have made me the most abjectly wretched man living. Leave me, I entreat you. Adieu, adieu. Forgive me, oh, forgive me, Raoul, for what I have done. Have I not done much, much more? Have I not told you that I love you still? 
she buried her face in her hands. And to tell you that, do you hear me, Louise? To tell you that, at such a moment as this, to tell you that, as I have told you, is to pronounce my own sentence of death. Adieu. La Valliere held out her hands to him in vain. We ought not to see each other again in this world, he said, and as she was on the point of crying out in bitter agony at this remark, he placed his hand on her mouth to stifle the exclamation. She pressed her lips upon it and fell fainting to the ground. Olivain, said Raoul, take this young lady and bear her to the carriage which is waiting for her at the door. As Olivain lifted her up, Raoul made a movement as if to dart towards La Valliere in order to give her a first and last kiss. But, stopping abruptly, he said, No, she is not mine. I am no thief, as is the King of France. And he returned to his room, whilst the lackey carried La Valliere, still fainting, to the carriage. End of chapter 61 Recording by Todd Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Chapter 62 of Louise de la Valliere. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumont. Chapter 62. What Raoul had guessed. As soon as Raoul had quitted Athos and D'Artagnan, as the two exclamations that had followed his departure escaped their lips, they found themselves face to face alone. Athos immediately resumed the earnest air which he had assumed at D'Artagnan's arrival. Well, he said, what have you come to announce to me, my friend? I? inquired D'Artagnan. Yes, I do not see you in this way without some reason for it, said Athos, smiling. The deuce, said D'Artagnan. I will place you at your ease. The king is furious, I suppose. Well, I must say he is not altogether pleased. And you have come to arrest me, then? My dear friend, you have hit the very mark. Oh, I expected it. I am quite ready to go with you. Deuce take it, said D'Artagnan. What a hurry you are in. I am afraid of delaying you, said Athos, smiling. I have plenty of time. Are you not curious, besides? to know how things went on between the king and me? If you will be so good enough to tell me, I will listen with the greatest of pleasure, said Athos, pointing out to D'Artagnan a large chair into which the latter threw himself, assuming the easiest possible attitude. Well, I will do so willingly enough, continued D'Artagnan, for the conversation is rather curious, I must say. In the first place, the king sent for me. As soon as I had left, you were just going down the last steps of the staircase, as the musketeers told me. I arrived. My dear Athos, he was not red in the face merely. He was positively purple. I was not aware, of course, of what had passed. Only on the ground, lying on the floor, I saw a sword broken in two. 
"'Captain D'Artagnan!' cried the king as soon as he saw me. "'Sire,' I replied, "'Monsieur d'Affaire has just left me. He is an insolent man!' "'An insolent man?' I exclaimed, in such a tone that the king stopped suddenly short. "'Captain D'Artagnan!' resumed the king with his teeth clenched. "'You will be good enough to listen to and hear me!' "'That is my duty, sire.' I have, out of consideration for Monsieur de la Fere, wished to spare him. He is a man of whom I still retain some kind recollections, the discredit of being arrested in my palace. You will therefore take a carriage. At this I made a slight movement. If you object to arrest him yourself, continued the king, send me my captain of the guards. Sire, I replied, there is no necessity for the captain of the guards, since I am on duty. "'I should not like to annoy you,' said the king kindly, "'for you have always served me well, Monsieur d'Artagnan.' "'You do not annoy me, sire,' I replied. "'I am on duty, that is all.' "'But,' said the king in astonishment, "'I believe the Comte is your friend.' "'If he were my father, sire, "'it would not make me less on duty than I am.' "'The king looked at me. "'He saw how unmoved my face was, "'and seemed satisfied. "'You will arrest Monsieur le Comte de la Fere, then?' he inquired. Most certainly, sire, if you will give me the order to do so. Very well, I order you to do so. I bowed and replied. Where is the comte, sire? You will look for him. And am I to arrest him wherever he may be? Yes, but try that he may be at his own house. If he should have started for his own estate, leave Paris at once and arrest him on his way thither. I bowed, but as I did not move, he said, well, what are you waiting for? For the order to arrest the comte, signed by yourself. The king seemed annoyed, for, in point of fact, it was the exercise of a fresh act of authority, a repetition of the arbitrary act, if, indeed, it is to be considered as such. He took hold of his pen slowly, and evidently in no very good temper, and then he wrote, Order for Monsieur Le Chevalier d'Artagnan, captain of my musketeers, to arrest Monsieur le comte de la Fere, wherever he is to be found. He then turned towards me, but I was looking on without moving a muscle of my face. In all probability he thought he perceived something like bravado in my tranquil manner, for he signed hurriedly, and then handing me the order, he said, Go, monsieur! I obeyed, and here I am. Athos pressed his friend's hand. Well, let us set off, he said. Oh, surely, said D'Artagnan, you must have some trifling manners to arrange before you leave your apartments in this manner. I? Not at all. Why not? Why, you know, D'Artagnan, that I have always been a very simple traveller on this earth, ready to go to the end of the world by the order of my sovereign, ready to quit it on the summons of my maker. What does a man who is thus prepared require in such a case? A portmanteau or a shroud? I am ready at this moment, as I have always been, my dear friend and can accompany you at once. But Brazolon, I have brought him up in the same principles I laid down for my own guidance, and you observed that, as soon as he perceived you, he guessed, that very moment, the motive of your visit. We have thrown him off his guard for a moment, but do not be uneasy. He is sufficiently prepared for my disgrace not to be too much alarmed at it. So let us go. Very well, let us go, said D'Artagnan quietly. As I broke my sword in the king's presence, and threw the pieces at his feet, I presume that will dispense with the necessity of delivering it over to you? You are quite right, and besides that, 
what the deuce do you suppose i could do with your sword am i to walk behind or before you inquired athos laughing you will walk arm in arm with me replied d'artagnan as he took the comte's arm to descend the staircase and in this manner they arrived at the landing Grimaud, whom they had met in the ante-room looked at them as they went out together in this manner with some little uneasiness his experience of affairs was quite sufficient to give him good reason to suspect that there was something wrong ah is that you Grimaud? said athos kindly we are going to take a turn in my carriage interrupted d'artagnan with a friendly nod of the head Grimaud thanked d'artagnan by a grimace which was evidently intended for a smile and accompanied both the friends to the door athos entered first into the carriage d'artagnan following him without saying a word to the coachman the departure had taken place so quietly that it excited no disturbance or attention even in the neighborhood when the carriage had reached the quay you are taking me to the bastille i perceive said athos i said d'artagnan i take you wherever you may choose to go nowhere else i can assure you what do you mean said the comte surprised why surely my dear friend said d'artagnan you quite understand that i undertook the mission with no other object in view than that of carrying it out exactly as you liked you surely did not expect that i was going to get you thrown into prison like that brutally and without any reflection if i had anticipated that i should have let the captain of the guards undertake it and so said athos and so i repeat again we will go wherever you may choose my dear friend said athos embracing d'artagnan how like you that is well it seems simple enough to me the coachman will take you to the barrier of the corps la reine you will find a horse there which i have ordered to be kept ready for you with that horse you will be able to do three posts without stopping and i on my side will take care not to return to the king to tell him that you have gone away until the very moment it will be impossible to overtake you in the meantime you will have reached la havre and from la havre across to england where you will find the charming residence of which monsieur monk made me a present without speaking of the hospitality which king charles will not fail to show you well what do you think of this project otto shook his head and then said smiling as he did so no no take me to the bastille you are an obstinate fellow my dear athos returned d'artagnan reflect for a few moments on what subject that you are no longer twenty years of age believe me i speak according to my own knowledge and experience our prison is certain death for men who are at our time of life no no i will never allow you to languish in prison in such a way why the very thought of it makes my head turn giddy dear d'artagnan athos replied heaven most fortunately made my body as strong powerful and enduring as my mind and rely upon it i shall retain my strength up to the very last moment but this is not strength of mind or character it is sheer madness no d'artagnan it is the highest order of reasoning do not suppose that i should in the slightest degree in the world discuss the question with you whether you would not be ruined in endeavouring to save me i should have done precisely as you propose if flight had been part of my plan of action i should therefore have accepted from you what without any doubt you would have accepted from me no i know you too well even to breathe a word upon the subject ah if you would only let me do it said d'artagnan what a dance we would give his most gracious majesty still he is the king do not forget that my dear friend oh that is all the same to me and king though he be i would plainly tell him sir imprison exile kill every one in france and europe 
order me to arrest and poniard even whom you like even if it were monsieur your own brother but do not touch one of the four musketeers or if so mordieu my dear friend replied athos with perfect calmness i should like to persuade you of one thing namely that i wish to be arrested that i desire above all things that my arrest should take place d'artagnan made a slight movement of his shoulders nay i wish it i repeat more than anything if you were going to let me escape it would be only to return of my own accord and constitute myself a prisoner i wish to prove to this young man who is dazzled by the power and splendor of his crown that he can be regarded as the first and chiefest among men only on the one condition of his proving himself to be the most generous and the wisest he may punish me imprison torture me it matters not he abuses his opportunities and i wish him to learn the bitterness of remorse while heaven teaches him what chastisement is well well replied d'artagnan i know only too well that when you have once said no you mean no i do not insist any longer you wish to go to the bastille i do wish to go there let us go then to the bastille cried d'artagnan to the coachman and throwing himself back in the carriage he gnawed the ends of his moustache with a fury which for athos who knew him well signified a resolution either already taken or in course of formation a profound silence ensued in the carriage which continued to roll on but neither faster nor slower than before athos took the musketeer by the hand you are not angry with me d'artagnan he said i oh no certainly not of course not what you do for heroism i should have done from obstinacy but you are quite of opinion are you not that heaven will avenge me d'artagnan and i know one or two on earth who will not fail to lend a helping hand said the captain End of chapter 62 Recording by Todd Chapter 63 of Louise de Valliere This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de Valliere by Alexandre Dumont Chapter 63 Chapter 63 Three guests astonished to find themselves at supper together. The carriage arrived at the outside of the gate of the Bastille. A soldier on guard stopped it, but D'Artagnan had only to utter a single word to procure admittance, and the carriage passed on without further difficulty. Whilst they were proceeding along the covered way which led to the courtyard of the governor's residence, D'Artagnan, whose lynx eyes saw everything, even through the walls, suddenly cried out, What is that out yonder? Well, said Athos quietly, what is it? Look yonder, Athos. In the courtyard? Yes, yes, make haste. Well, a carriage. Very likely conveying a prisoner like myself. That would be too droll. I do not understand you. Make haste and look again, and look at the man who is just getting out of that carriage. At that very moment, a second sentinel stopped D'Artagnan, and while the formalities were being gone through, Athos could see at a hundred paces from him the man whom his friend had pointed out to him. He was, in fact, getting out of the carriage at the door of the governor's house. Well, inquired D'Artagnan, do you see him? Yes, he is a man in a gray suit. What do you say of him? I cannot very well tell. He is, as I have just now told you, a man in a gray suit who is getting out of a carriage. That is all. 
Athos, I will wager anything that it is he. He who? Aramis. Aramis arrested? Impossible. I do not say he is arrested, since we see him alone in his carriage. Well, then, what is he doing here? Oh, he knows Bessonneur, the governor, replied the musketeer slyly. So we have arrived just in time. What for? In order to see what we can see. I regret this meeting exceedingly. When Aramis sees me, he will be very much annoyed. In the first place, at seeing me, and in the next, at being seen. Very well reasoned. Unfortunately, there is no remedy for it. Whenever anyone meets another in the Bastille, even if he wished to draw back to avoid him, it would be impossible. Athos, I have an idea. The question is to spare Aramis the annoyance you were speaking of, is it not? What is to be done? I will tell you, for in order to explain myself in the best possible way, let me relate the affair in my own manner. I will not recommend you to tell a falsehood, for that would be impossible for you to do. But I will tell falsehoods enough for both. It is easy to do that when one is born to the nature and habits of a Gascon. Athos smiled. The carriage stopped where the one we have just now pointed out had stopped, namely, at the door of the governor's house. It is understood, then, said D'Artagnan in a low voice to his friend. Athos consented by a gesture. They ascended the staircase. There will be no occasion for surprise at the facility with which they had entered into the Bastille, if it be remembered that, before passing the first gate, in fact, the most difficult of all, D'Artagnan had announced that he had brought a prisoner of state. At the third gate, on the contrary, that is to say, when he had once fairly entered the prison, he merely said to the sentinel, To Monsieur Besamont, and they both passed on. In a few minutes they were in the governor's dining-room, and the first face which attracted D'Artagnan's observation was that of Aramis, who was seated side by side with Besamont, awaiting the announcement of a meal whose odor impregnated the whole apartment. If D'Artagnan pretended surprise, Aramis did not pretend at all. He started when he saw his two friends, and his emotion was very apparent. Athos and D'Artagnan, however, complimented him as usual, and Bessemur, amazed, completely stupefied by the presence of his three guests, began to perform a few evolutions around them. "'By what lucky accident! We were just going to ask you,' retorted D'Artagnan. "'Are we going to give ourselves up as prisoners?' cried Aramis, with an affection of hilarity. "'Ha! ha!' said D'Artagnan. "'It is true the walls smell deucedly like a prison. "'Monsieur de Bazemont, you know you invited me to stop with you the other day.' "'I?' said Bazemont. "'Well, of course you did, although you now seem so struck with amazement. "'Don't you remember it?' Bazemont turned pale, and then red, looked at Aramis, who looked at him, and finished by stammering out, "'Certainly, I am delighted.' but upon my honor, I have not the slightest. Ah, I have such a wretched memory. Well, I am wrong, I see, said D'Artagnan, as if he were offended. Wrong? What for? Wrong to remember anything about it, it seems. Bazemur hurried towards him. Do not stand on ceremony, my dear captain, he said. I have the worst memory in the world. I no sooner leave off thinking of my pigeons and their pigeon-house than I am no better than the rawest recruit. At all events, you do remember now, said D'Artagnan boldly. Yes, yes, replied the governor, hesitating. I think I do remember. It was when you came to the palace to see me. You told me some story or other about your accounts with Monsieur de Louvre and Monsieur de Tremblay. Oh, yes, perfectly. 
and about Monsieur d'Herblay's kindness towards you. Ah, said Aramis, looking at the unhappy governor full in the face, and yet you just now said you had no memory, Monsieur de Baisemeaux. Baisemeaux interrupted the musketeer in the middle of his revelations. Yes, yes, you're quite right. How could I have forgotten? I remember it now as well as possible. I beg you a thousand pardons. But now, once for all, my dear Monsieur d'Artagnan, be sure that at this present time, as at any other, whether invited or not, you are perfectly at home here. You and Monsieur Dublay, your friend, he said, turning towards Aramis. And this gentleman, too, he added, bowing to Athos. Well, I thought it would be sure to turn out so, replied d'Artagnan, and that is the reason I came. Having nothing to do this evening at the Palais Royal, I wished to judge for myself what your ordinary style of living was like, and as I was coming along, I met the Comte de la Fere. Athos bowed. The Comte, who has just left his majesty, handed me an order which required immediate attention. We were close by here. I wished to call in, even if it were for no other object than that of shaking hands with you and of presenting the Comte to you, of whom you spoke so highly that evening at the palace when... Certainly, certainly. Monsieur the Comte de la Fere? Precisely. The Comte is welcome, I am sure. And he will sup with you too, I suppose, whilst I, unfortunate dog that I am, must run off on a matter of duty. Oh, what happy beings you are compared to myself, he added, sighing as loud as Porthos might have done. And so you are going away then, said Aramis and Bassemot together, with the same expression of delighted surprise, the tone of which was immediately noticed by D'Artagnan. I leave you in my place, he said, a noble and excellent guest. And he touched Athos gently on the shoulder, who, astonished also, could not help exhibiting his surprise a little, which was noticed by Aramis only, for Monsieur de la Basemot was not quite equal to the three friends in point of intelligence. "'What, are you going to leave us?' resumed the governor. "'I shall only be an hour, or an hour and a half. I will return in time for dessert.' "'Oh, we will wait for you,' said Basemot. "'No, no, that would be really disobliging me.' "'You will be sure to return, though,' said Athos, with an expression of doubt. "'Most certainly,' he said, pressing his friend's hand confidently, and he added in a low voice, "'Wait for me, Athos. Be cheerful and lively as possible, and above all, don't allude even to business affairs, for heaven's sake.' And with the renewed pressure of the hand, he seemed to warn the Comte of the necessity of keeping perfectly discreet and impenetrable. Basimol led D'Artagnan to the gate. Aramis, with many friendly protestations of delight, sat down by Athos, determined to make him speak. But Athos possessed every virtue and quality to the very highest degree. If necessity had required it, he would have been the finest orator in the world, but on other occasions he would rather have died than have opened his lips. Ten minutes after D'Artagnan's departure, the three gentlemen sat down to table, which was covered with the most substantial display of gastronomic luxury. Large joints, exquisite dishes, preserves, the greatest variety of wines appeared successively upon the table, which was served at the king's expense and of which expense Monsieur Colbert could have found no difficulty in saving two-thirds, without any one in the Bastille being the worse for it. Basimot was the only one who ate and drank with gastronomic resolution. Aramis allowed nothing to pass by him, but merely touched everything he took. Athos, after the soup and three hors d'oeuvres, ate nothing more. The style of conversation was such as might have been anticipated between three men so opposite in temper and ideas. Aramis was incessantly asking himself by what extraordinary chance Athos was there at Basimot's, when D'Artagnan was no longer there. 
and why d'artagnan did not remain when athos was there athos sounded all the depths of the mind of aramis who lived in the midst of subterfuge evasion and intrigue he studied his man well and thoroughly and felt convinced that he was engaged upon some important project and then he too began to think of his own personal affair and to lose himself in conjectures as to d'artagnan's reason for having left the bastille so abruptly and for leaving behind him a prisoner so badly introduced and so badly looked after by the prison authorities but we shall not pause to examine into the thoughts and feelings of these personages but will leave them to themselves surrounded by the remains of poultry game and fish which basimo's generous knife and fork had so mutilated we are going to follow d'artagnan instead who getting into the carriage which had brought him said to the coachman return to the palace as fast as the horses can gallop end of chapter sixty three recording by todd chapter sixty four of louise de la valliere this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumont. Chapter 64. What took place at the Louvre during the supper at the Bastille. Monsieur de Saint-Aignan had executed the commission with which the king had entrusted him for la Valliere, as we have already seen in one of the preceding chapters. But whatever his eloquence, he did not succeed in persuading the young girl that she had in the king a protector powerful enough for her under any combination of circumstances and that she had no need of anyone else in the world when the king was on her side in point of fact at the very first word which the favorite mentioned of the discovery of the famous secret louise in a passion of tears abandoned herself in utter despair to a sorrow which would have been far from flattering for the king if he had been a witness to it from one of the corners of the room saint-aignan in his character of ambassador felt almost as greatly offended at it as his master himself would have been and returned to inform the king that he had been seen and heard and it is thus we find him in a state of great agitation in the presence of the king who was if possible in a state of even greater flurry than himself but said the king to the courtier when the latter had finished his report what did she decide to do shall i at least see her presently before supper will she come to me or shall i be obliged to go to her room i believe sire that if your majesty wishes to see her you will not only have to take the first step in advance but will have to go the whole way that i do not mind do you think she has yet a secret fancy for young brasolon muttered the king between his teeth oh sire that is not possible for it is you alone i am convinced mademoiselle de valliere loves and that too with all her heart but you know that the brasolon belongs to that proud race who play the part of roman heroes the king smiled feebly he knew how true the illustration was for athos had just left him as for mademoiselle de la valliere saint-aignan continued she was brought up under the care of the dowager madame that is to say in the greatest austerity and formality this young engaged couple coldly exchanged their little vows in the prim presence of the moon and stars and now when they find they have to break those vows asunder it plays the very deuce with them saint-aignan thought to have made the king laugh but on the contrary from a mere smile louis passed to the greatest seriousness of manner he had already begun to experience that remorse which the comte had promised d'artagnan he would inflict upon him he reflected that in fact these young persons had loved and sworn fidelity to each other 
that one of the two had kept his word, and that the other was too conscientious not to feel her perjury most bitterly. And his remorse was not unaccompanied, for bitter pangs of jealousy began to beset the king's heart. He did not say another word, and instead of going to pay a visit to his mother, or the queen, or madame, in order to amuse himself a little, and make the ladies laugh, as he himself used to say, he threw himself into the huge armchair in which his august father Louis Thirteenth had passed so many weary days and years in company with Baradat and Saint-Mère. Saint-Agnon perceived the king was not to be amused at that moment. He tried a last resource, and pronounced Louise's name, which made the king look up immediately. What does your majesty intend to do this evening? Should Mademoiselle de la Valliere be informed of your intention to see her? It seems she is already aware of that, replied the king. No, no, Saint-Agnon, he continued after a moment's pause. We will both of us pass our time in thinking, and musing, and dreaming, when Mademoiselle de la Valliere shall have sufficiently regretted what she now regrets. She will deign, perhaps, to give us some news of herself. Ah, sire, is it possible you can so misunderstand her heart, which is so full of devotion? The king rose, flushed from vexation and annoyance. He was a prey to jealousy as well as to remorse. Saint-Agnon was just beginning to feel that his position was becoming awkward when the curtain before the door was raised. The king turned hastily round. His first idea was a letter from Louise had arrived. But instead of a letter of love, he only saw his captain of musketeers, standing upright and perfectly silent in the doorway. Monsieur d'Artagnan, he said. Ah, well, monsieur. D'Artagnan looked at Saint-Agnon. The king's eyes took the same direction as those of his captain. These looks would have been clear to anyone, and for a still greater reason they were so for Saint-Agnon. The courtier bowed and quitted the room, leaving the king and D'Artagnan alone. "'Is it done?' inquired the king. "'Yes, sire,' replied the captain of the musketeers in a grave voice. "'It is done.' The king was unable to say another word. Pride, however, obliged him not to pause at what he had done. Whenever a sovereign had adopted a decisive course, even though it be unjust, he is compelled to prove to all witnesses, and particularly to prove it to himself, that he was quite right all through. A good means for effecting that, an almost infallible means indeed, is to try and prove his victim to be in the wrong. Louis, brought up by Mazarin and Anne of Austria, knew better than anyone else his vocation as a monarch. He therefore endeavored to prove it on the present occasion. After a few moments' pause, which he had employed in making silently to himself the same reflections which we have just expressed aloud, he said, in an indifferent tone, What did the comte say? Nothing at all, sire. Surely he did not allow himself to be arrested without saying something? He said he expected to be arrested, sire. The king raised his head haughtily. I presume, he said, that monsieur le comte de la Fere has not continued to play his obstinate and rebellious part? In the first place, sire, what do you wish to signify by rebellious? quietly asked the musketeer. A rebel, in the eyes of the king, is a man who not only allows himself to be shut up in the Bastille, but still more, who opposes those who do not wish to take him there. Who do not wish to take him there? exclaimed the king. What do you say, captain? Are you mad? I believe not, sire. You speak of persons who did not wish to arrest Monsieur de la Fere. Who are these persons, may I ask? I should say those whom your majesty entrusted with that duty. But it was you whom I entrusted with it, exclaimed the king. Yes, sire, it was I. And yet you say that, despite my orders, you had the intention of not arresting the man who had insulted me? 
Yes, sire, that really was my intention. I even proposed to the Comte to mount a horse that I had prepared for him at the Barriere de la Conference. And what was your object in getting this horse ready? Why, sire, in order that Monsieur de la Comte de la Fere might be able to reach La Havre, and from that place make his escape to England. You betrayed me then, monsieur? cried the king, kindling with a wild pride. Exactly so. There was nothing to say in answer to statements made in such a tone. The king was astounded at such an obstinate and open resistance on the part of D'Artagnan. At least you had a reason, Monsieur D'Artagnan, for acting as you did, said the king proudly. I have always a reason for everything, sire. Your reason cannot be your friendship for the comte, at all events. The only one that can be of any avail, the only one that could possibly excuse you, for I placed you perfectly at your ease in that respect. Me, sire? Did I not give you the choice to arrest or not to arrest Monsieur le Comte de la Fere? Yes, sire, but... But what? exclaimed the king impatiently. But you warned me, sire, that if I did not arrest him, your captain of the guard should do so. Was I not considerate enough towards you from the very moment I did not compel you to obey me? To me, sire, you were, but not to my friend, for my friend would be arrested all the same, whether by myself or by the captain of the guards. And this is devotion, monsieur? A devotion which argues and reasons? You are no soldier, monsieur. I wait for your majesty to tell me what I am. Well, then, you are a fondieu. And since there is no longer any fronde, sire, in that case. But if what you say is true, what I say is always true, sire. What have you come to say to me, monsieur? I have come to say to your majesty, sire, monsieur de la Fere is in the Bastille. That is not your fault, it would seem. That is true, sire, but at all events he is there, and since he is there, it is important that your majesty should know it. Oh, monsieur d'Artagnan, so you set your king at defiance. Sire, monsieur d'Artagnan, I warn you that you are abusing my patience. On the contrary, sire. What do you mean by on the contrary? I have come to get myself arrested, too. To get yourself arrested? You? Of course. My friend will get wearied to death in the Bastille by himself, and I have come to propose to your majesty to permit me to bear him company. If your majesty will but give the word, I will arrest myself. I shall not need the captain of the guards for that, I assure you. The king darted towards the table, and seized hold of a pen to write the order for D'Artagnan's imprisonment. Pay attention, monsieur, that this is forever, cried the king, in tones of sternest menace. I can quite believe that, returned the musketeer, for when you have once done such an act as that, you will never be able to look me in the face again. The king dashed down his pen violently. Leave the room, monsieur, he said. Not so, if it please your majesty. What is that you say? Sire, I came to speak gently and temperately to your majesty. Your majesty got into a passion with me. That is a misfortune. But I shall not the less on that account say what I had to say to you. Your resignation, monsieur, your resignation, cried the king. Sire, you know whether I care about my resignation or not. Since at Blois, on the very day when you refused King Charles the million which my friend the Comte de la Fere gave him, I then tendered my resignation to your majesty. Very well, monsieur, do it at once. No, sire, for there is no question of my resignation at the present moment. Your Majesty took up your pen just now to send me to the Bastille. Why should you change your intention? D'Artagnan! Gascon that you are! Who is king? Allow me to ask, you or myself? You, sire, unfortunately. What do you mean by unfortunately? 
Why, sire, for if it were I, if it were you, you would approve of Monsieur d'Artagnan's rebellious conduct, I suppose? Certainly. Really, said the king, shrugging his shoulders. And I should tell my captain of the musketeers, continued d'Artagnan, I should tell him, looking at him all the while with human eyes, and not with eyes like coals of fire, Monsieur d'Artagnan, I had forgotten that I was the king, for I descended from my throne in order to insult a gentleman. Monsieur, said the king, do you think you can excuse your friend by exceeding him in insolence? Oh, sire, I should go much further than he did, said d'Artagnan, and it would be your own fault. I should tell you what he, a man full of the finest sense of delicacy, did not tell you. I should say, sire, you have sacrificed his son, and he defended his son. You sacrificed himself. He addressed you in the name of honor, of religion, of virtue. You repulsed, drove him away, imprisoned him. I should be harder than he was, for I should say to you, Sire, it is for you to choose. Do you wish to have friends or lackeys, soldiers or slaves, great men or mere puppets? Do you wish men to serve you or to bend and crouch before you? Do you wish men to love you or to be afraid of you? If you prefer baseness, intrigue, cowardice, say so at once, sire, and we will leave you. We, who are the only individuals who are left, nay, I will say more, the only models of the valor of former times, we who have done our duty, and have exceeded, perhaps, in courage and in merit, the men already great for posterity. Choose, sire, and that too without delay, whatever relics remain to you of the great nobility, guard them with a jealous eye. You will never be deficient in courtiers. Delay not, and send me to the Bastille with my friend, for, if you do not know how to listen to the Comte de la Fere, whose voice is the sweetest and noblest in all the world when honor is the theme, if you do not know how to listen to D'Artagnan, the frankest and honest voice of sincerity, you are a bad king, and tomorrow will be a poor king. And learn from me, sire, that bad kings are hated by their people, and poor kings are driven ignominiously away. That is what I had to say to you, sire. You were wrong to drive me to say it. The king threw himself back in his chair, cold as death and as livid as corpse. Had a thunderbolt fallen at his feet, he could not have been more astonished. He seemed as if his respiration had utterly ceased, and that he was at the point of death. The honest voice of sincerity, as D'Artagnan had called it, had pierced through his heart like a sword-blade. D'Artagnan had said all he had to say. Comprehending the king's anger, he drew his sword, and approaching Louis the Fourteenth respectfully, he placed it on the table. But the king, with a furious gesture, thrust aside the sword, which fell on the ground and rolled to D'Artagnan's feet. Notwithstanding the perfect mastery which D'Artagnan exercised over himself, he, too, in his turn, became pale, and trembling with indignation, said, A king may disgrace a soldier, he may exile him, and may even condemn him to death, but were he a hundred times a king, he has no right to insult him by casting a dishonor upon his sword. Sire, a king of France has never repulsed with contempt the sword of a man such as I. Stained with disgrace as this sword now is, it has henceforth no other sheath than either your heart or my own. I choose my own, sire, and you have to thank heaven and my own patience that I do so. Then, snatching up his sword, he cried, My blood to be upon your head! And with a rapid gesture, he placed the hilt upon the floor and directed the point of the blade towards his breast. The king, however, with a movement far more rapid than that of D'Artagnan, threw his right arm around the musketeer's neck, and with his left hand seized hold of the blade by the middle, and returned it silently to the scabbard. D'Artagnan, upright, pale, and still trembling, let the king do all to the very end. Louis, 
overcome and softened by gentler feelings, returned to the table, took a pen in his hand, wrote a few lines, signed them, and then held it out to D'Artagnan. "'What is this paper, sire?' inquired the captain. "'In order for Monsieur D'Artagnan to set the Comte de la Fere at liberty, immediately.' D'Artagnan seized the king's hand, and imprinted a kiss upon it. He then folded the order, placed it in his belt, and quitted the room. Neither the king nor the captain had uttered a syllable. "'Oh, human heart, thou guide and director of kings!' murmured Louis when alone. "'When shall I learn to read in your inmost recesses as in the leaves of a book? "'Oh, I am not a bad king, nor am I a poor king. "'I am but still a child when all is said and done.'" End of chapter 64 Recording by Todd When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 65 of Louise de la Valliere. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Louise de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 65 Political Rivals. D'Artagnan had promised Monsieur de Baisemeaux to return in time for dessert, and he kept his word. They had just reached the finer and more delicate class of wines and liqueurs, with which the governor's cellar had the reputation of being most admirably stocked, when the silver spurs of the captain resounded in the corridor, and he himself appeared at the threshold. Athos and Aramis had played a close game. Neither of the two had been able to gain the slightest advantage over the other. They had supped, talked a good deal about the Bastille, of the last journey to Fontainebleau, and of the intended fete that M. Fouquet was about to give at Vaux. They had generalized on every possible subject, and no one, excepting Baisemeaux, had in the slightest degree alluded to private matters. D'Artagnan arrived in the very midst of the conversation, still pale and much disturbed by his interview with the king. Baisemeaux hastened to give him a chair. D'Artagnan accepted a glass of wine, and set it down empty. Athos and Aramis both remarked his emotion. As for Baisemeaux, he saw nothing more than the captain of the king's musketeers, to whom he endeavored to show every possible attention. But, although Aramis had remarked his emotion, he had not been able to guess the cause of it. Athos alone believed he had detected it. For him, D'Artagnan's return, and particularly the manner in which he usually so impassable seemed overcome signified quote, i have just asked the king something which the king has refused me end quote. thoroughly convinced that his conjecture was correct athos smiled rose from the table and made a sign to d'artagnan as if to remind him that they had something else to do than to sup together d'artagnan immediately understood him and replied by another sign. 
Aramis and Baisemeaux watched this silent dialogue, and looked inquiringly at each other. Athos felt that he was called upon to give an explanation of what was passing. "'The truth is, my friend,' said the Comte de la Fere, with a smile, "'that you, Aramis, have been supping with a state criminal, and you, Monsieur de Baisemeaux, with your prisoner.' Baisemeaux uttered an exclamation of surprise, and almost of delight, for he was exceedingly proud and vain of his fortress, and for his own individual profit. The more prisoners he had, the happier he was, and the higher in rank the prisoners happened to be, the prouder he felt. Aramis assumed the expression of countenance he thought the position justified, and said, Well, dear Athos, forgive me, but I almost suspected what has happened. Some prank of Raoul and La Valliere, I suppose. Alas, said Baisemeaux, and, continued Aramis, you, a high and powerful nobleman, as you are, forgetful that courtiers now exist. You have been to the king, I suppose, and told him what you thought of his conduct? Yes, you have guessed right. So that, said Baisemeaux, trembling at having supped so familiarly with a man who had fallen into disgrace with the king. So that, monsieur le comte, so that, my dear governor, said Athos, my friend d'Artagnan, will communicate to you the contents of the paper which i perceived just peeping out of his belt and which assuredly can be nothing else than the order for my incarceration baisemeaux held out his hand with his accustomed eagerness d'artagnan drew two papers from his belt and presented one of them to the governor who unfolded it and then read in a low tone of voice looking at athos over the paper as he did so and pausing from time to time Quote, order to detain in my chateau of the bastille monsieur le comte de la fere oh monsieur this is indeed a very melancholy day for me you will have a patient prisoner monsieur said athos in his calm soft voice a prisoner too who will not remain a month with you my dear governor said aramis while baisemeaux still holding the order in his hand transcribed it upon the prison registry not a day or rather, not even a night, said D'Artagnan, displaying the second order of the king. For now, dear Monsieur de Baisemeaux, you will have the goodness to transcribe also this order for setting the comte immediately at liberty. Ah, said Aramis, it is a labor that you have deprived me of, D'Artagnan. And he pressed the musketeer's hand in a significant manner, at the same moment as that of Athos. What? said the latter in astonishment. The king sets me at liberty. Read, my dear friend, returned D'Artagnan. Athos took the order and read it. It is quite true, he said. Are you sorry for it? asked D'Artagnan. Oh, no, on the contrary. I wish the king no harm, and the greatest evil or misfortune that any one can wish kings is that they should commit an act of injustice. But you have had a difficult and painful task, I know. Tell me, have you not, D'Artagnan? I? Not at all, said the musketeer, laughing. The king does everything I wish him to do. Aramis looked fixedly at D'Artagnan, and saw that he was not speaking the truth. But Baisemeaux had eyes for nothing but D'Artagnan. So great was his admiration for a man who seemed to make the king do all he wished. And does the king exile Athos? required Aramis. No, not precisely. The king did not explain himself upon that subject, replied D'Artagnan. But I think the comte 
could not do better unless indeed he wishes particularly to thank the king no indeed replied athos smiling well then i think resumed d'artagnan that the comte cannot do better than to retire to his own chateau however my dear athos you have only to speak to tell me what you want if any particular place of residence is more agreeable to you than another i am influential enough perhaps to obtain it for you no thank you said athos nothing can be more agreeable to me my dear friend than to return to my solitude beneath my noble trees on the banks of the loire if heaven be the overruling physician of the evils of the mind nature is a sovereign remedy and so monsieur continued athos turning again toward baisemeaux i am now free i suppose yes monsieur le comte i think so at least i hope so said the governor turning over and over the two papers in question unless however monsieur d'artagnan has a third order to give me no my dear baisemeaux no said the musketeer the second is quite enough we will stop there if you please ah monsieur le comte said baisemeaux addressing athos you do not know what you are losing i should have placed you among the thirty-franc prisoners like the generals what am i saying i mean among the fifty francs like the princess and you would have supped every evening as you have done to-night allow me monsieur said athos to prefer my own simpler fare and then turning to d'artagnan he said let us go my dear friend shall i have the greatest of all pleasures for me that of having you as my companion to the city gate only replied d'artagnan after which i will tell you what i told the king i am on duty and you my dear aramis said athos smiling will you accompany me la fere is on the road to vannes thank you my dear friend said aramis but i have an appointment in paris this evening and i cannot leave without very serious interests suffering in my absence in that case said athos i must say adieu and take my leave of you my dear monsieur de baisemeaux i have to thank you exceedingly for your kind and friendly disposition towards me and particularly for the enjoyable specimen you have given me of the ordinary fare of the bastille and having embraced aramis and shaken hands with monsieur de baisemeaux and having received best wishes for a pleasant journey from them both athos set off with d'artagnan whilst the denouement of the scene of the palais royal was taking place at the bastille let us relate what was going on at the lodgings of athos and bragelonne rameau as we have seen had accompanied his master to paris and as we have said he was present when athos went out he had observed d'artagnan gnaw the corners of his moustache he had seen his master get into the carriage he had narrowly examined both their countenances and he had known them both for a sufficiently long period to read and understand through the mask of their impassibility that something serious was the matter as soon as athos had gone he began to reflect he then and then only remembered the strange manner in which athos had taken leave of him the embarrassment imperceptible as it would have been to any but himself of the master whose ideas were to him so clear and defined and the expression of whose wishes was so precise he knew that athos had taken nothing with him but the clothes he had on him at the time and yet he seemed to fancy that athos 
had not left for an hour merely, or even for a day. A long absence was signified by the manner in which he pronounced the word, Adieu. All these circumstances recurred to his mind, with feelings of deep affection for Athos, with that horror of isolation and solitude which invariably besets the minds of those who love, and all these combined rendered poor Grimaud very melancholy, and particularly uneasy, without being able to account to himself for what he did since his master's departure. He wandered about the room, seeking, as it were, for some traces of him, like a faithful dog, who is not exactly uneasy about his absent master, but at least is restless. Only as, in addition to the instinct of the animal, Grimaud subjoined the reasoning faculties of the man, Grimaud therefore felt uneasy and restless too. Not having found any indication which could serve as a guide, and having neither seen nor discovered anything which could satisfy his doubts, Grimaud began to wonder what could possibly have happened. Besides, imagination is the resource, or rather the plague, of gentle and affectionate hearts. In fact, never does a feeling heart represent its absent friend to itself as being happy or cheerful. Never does the dove that wings its flight in search of adventures inspire anything but terror at home. Grimaud soon passed from uneasiness to terror. He carefully went over, in his own mind, everything that had taken place. D'Artagnan's letter to Athos, the letter which seemed to distress Athos so much after he had read it. Then Raoul's visit to Athos, which resulted in Athos desiring him, Grimaud, to get his various orders and his court dress ready to put on. Then his interview with the king, at the end of which Athos had returned home, so unusually gloomy. Then the explanation between the father and the son, at the termination of which Athos had embraced Raoul with such sadness of expression, while Raoul himself went away equally weary and melancholy. And finally, D'Artagnan's arrival, biting, as if he were vexed, the ends of his moustache, and leaving again in the carriage, accompanied by the Comte de la Fere. All this composed a drama in five acts very clearly, particularly for so analytical an observer as Grimaud. The first step he took was to search in his master's coat for Monsieur d'Artagnan's letter. He found the letter still there, and its contents were found to run as follows. My dear friend, Raoul has been to ask me for some particulars about the conduct of Mademoiselle de la Valliere during our young friend's residence in London. I am a poor captain of musketeers, and I am sickened to death every day by hearing all the scandal of the barracks and bedside conversations. If I had told Raoul all I believe, I know the poor fellow would have died of it, but I am in the king's service and cannot relate all I hear about the king's affairs. If your heart tells you to do it, set off at once. The matter concerns you more than it does myself, and almost as much as Raoul. Grimaud tore, not a handful, but a finger and thumbful of hair out of his head. He would have done more if his head of hair had been in a more flourishing condition. Yes, he said, that is the key of the whole enigma. The young girl has been playing her pranks. What people say about her and the king is true, then. Our young master has been deceived. He ought to know it. Monsieur le Comte has been to see the king, and has told him a piece of his mind. Goodness, continued Grimaud, Monsieur le Comte, 
I now remember returned without his sword. This discovery made the perspiration break out all over poor Cremot's face. He did not waste any more time in useless conjecture, but clapped his hat on his head and ran to Raoul's lodgings. Raoul, after Louise had left him, had mastered his grief, if not his affection, and, compelled to look forward on that perilous road over which madness and revulsion were hurrying him. He had seen, from the very first glance, his father exposed to the royal obstinacy, since Athos had himself been the first to oppose any resistance to the royal will. At this moment, from a very natural sequence of feeling, the unhappy young man remembered the mysterious signs which Athos had made, and the unexpected visit of D'Artagnan. The result of the conflict between a sovereign and a subject revealed itself to his terrified vision. As D'Artagnan was on duty, that is, a fixture at his post, without the possibility of leaving it, it was certainly not likely that he had come to pay Athos a visit, merely for the pleasure of seeing him. He must have come to say something to him. This something, in the midst of such painful conjectures, must have been the news of either a misfortune or a danger. Raoul trembled at having been so selfish as to have forgotten his father for his affection, at having, in a word, passed his time in idle dreams, or in an indulgence of despair, at a time when a necessity existed for repelling such an imminent attack on Athos. The very idea nearly drove him frantic. He buckled on his sword and ran toward his father's lodgings. On his way there, he encountered Grimaud, who, having set off from the opposite pole, was running with equal eagerness in search of the truth. The two men embraced each other most warmly. Grimaud, exclaimed Raoul, is the con well? Have you seen him? No. Where is he? I am trying to find out. And Monsieur d'Artagnan? Went out with him. When? Ten minutes after you did. In what way did they go out? In a carriage. Where did they go? I have no idea at all. Did my father take any money with him? No. Or his sword? No. I have an idea, Grimaud, that Monsieur d'Artagnan came in order to arrest Monsieur le Comte. Do you not think, monsieur? Yes, Grimaud. I could have sworn it. What road did they take? The way leading toward the quay. To the Bastille, then? Yes, yes. Quick, quick, let us run. Yes, let us not lose a moment. But where are we to go? said Raoul, overwhelmed. We will go to Monsieur d'Artagnan's first. We may perhaps learn something there. No, if they keep me in ignorance at my father's, they will do the same everywhere. Let us go to... Oh, good heavens! Why, I must be mad to-day, Grimaud. I have forgotten Monsieur de Vallon, who is waiting for and expecting me still. Where is he, then? At the Minime of Vincennes. Thank goodness, that is on the same side as the Bastille. I will run and saddle the horses, and we will go at once, said Grimaud. Do, my friend, do. End of chapter 65《Chapter 66 of Louise de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 66 In which Porthos is convinced without having understood anything. 
the good and worthy porthos faithful to all the laws of ancient chivalry had determined to wait for monsieur de saint-aignan until sunset as saint-aignan did not come as raoul had forgotten to communicate with his second and as he found that waiting so long was very wearisome porthos had desired one of the gatekeepers to fetch him a few bottles of good wine and a good joint of meat so that at least he might pass away the time by means of a glass or two and a mouthful of something to eat he had just finished when raoul arrived escorted by grimaud both of them riding at full speed as soon as porthos saw the two cavaliers riding at such a pace along the road he did not for a moment doubt but that they were the men he was expecting and he rose from the grass upon which he had been indolently reclining and began to stretch his legs and arms saying see what it is to have good habits the fellow has finished by coming after all if i had gone away he would have found no one here and would have taken advantage of that he then threw himself into a martial attitude and drew himself up to the full height of his gigantic stature but instead of saint-aignan he only saw raoul who with the most despairing gestures accosted him by crying out pray forgive me my dear friend i am most wretched raoul cried porthos surprised you have been angry with me said raoul embracing porthos i what for for having forgotten you but i assure you my head seems utterly lost if you only knew you have killed him who saint-aignan or if that is not the cause what is the matter the matter is that monsieur le comte de la fere has by this time been arrested porthos gave a start that would have thrown down a wall arrested he cried out by whom by d'artagnan it is impossible said porthos my dear friend it is perfectly true porthos turned toward grimaud as if he needed a second confirmation of the intelligence grimaud nodded his head and where have they taken him probably to the bastille what makes you think that as we came along we questioned some persons who saw the carriage pass and others who saw it enter the bastille oh muttered porthos what do you intend to do inquired raoul i nothing only i will not have athos remain at the bastille do you know said raoul advancing nearer to porthos that the arrest was made by order of the king porthos looked at the young man as if to say what does that matter to me this dumb language seemed so eloquent of meaning to raoul that he did not ask any other question he mounted his horse again and porthos assisted by grimaud had already done the same let us arrange our plan of action said raoul yes returned porthos that is the best thing we can do raoul sighed deeply and then paused suddenly what is the matter asked porthos are you faint no only i feel how utterly helpless our position is can we three pretend to go and take the bastille well if d'artagnan were only here replied porthos i am not so very certain we would fail raoul could not resist a feeling of admiration at the sight of such perfect confidence heroic in its simplicity these were truly the celebrated men who by three or four attacked armies and assaulted castles men who had terrified death itself who had survived the wrecks of a tempestuous age and still stood stronger than the most robust of the young 
monsieur said he to porthos you have just given me an idea we absolutely must see monsieur d'artagnan undoubtedly he ought by this time to have returned home after having taken my father to the bastille let us go to his house first inquire at the bastille said grimaud who was in the habit of speaking little but that to the purpose accordingly they hastened toward the fortress when one of those chances which heaven bestows on men of strong will caused grimaud suddenly to perceive the carriage which was entering by the great gate of the drawbridge this was the moment that d'artagnan was as we have seen returning from his visit to the king in vain was it that raoul urged on his horse in order to join the carriage and to see whom it contained the horses had already gained the other side of the great gate which again closed while one of the sentries struck the nose of raoul's horse with his musket raoul turned about only too happy to find that he had ascertained something respecting the carriage which had contained his father we have him said grimaud if we wait a little it is certain he will leave don't you think so my friend unless indeed d'artagnan also be a prisoner replied porthos in which case everything is lost raoul returned no answer for any hypothesis was admissible he instructed grimaud to lead the horses to the little street jean beausire so as to give rise to less suspicion and himself with his piercing gaze watched for the exit either of d'artagnan or the carriage nor had he decided wrongly for twenty minutes had not elapsed before the gate reopened and the carriage reappeared a dazzling of the eyes prevented raoul from distinguishing what figures occupied the interior grimaud averred that he had seen two persons and that one of them was his master porthos kept looking at raoul and grimaud by turns in the hope of understanding their idea it is clear said grimaud that if the comte is in the carriage either he is set at liberty or they are taking him to another prison we shall soon see that by the road he takes answered porthos if he is set at liberty said grimaud they will conduct him home true rejoined porthos the carriage does not take that way cried raoul and indeed the horses were just disappearing down the faubourg saint antoine let us hasten said porthos we will attack the carriage on the road and tell athos to flee rebellion murmured raoul porthos darted a second glance at raoul quite worthy of the first raoul replied only by spurring the flanks of his steed in a few moments the three cavaliers had overtaken the carriage and followed it so closely that their horse's breath moistened the back of it d'artagnan whose senses were ever on the alert heard the trot of the horses at the moment when raoul was telling porthos to pass the chariot so as to see who was the person accompanying athos porthos complied but could not see anything for the blinds were lowered rage and impatience were gaining mastery over raoul he had just noticed the mystery preserved by athos's companion and determined on proceeding to extremities on his part d'artagnan had perfectly recognized porthos and raoul also from under the blinds and had communicated to the comte the result of his observation they were desirous only of seeing whether raoul and porthos would push the affair to the utmost and this they speedily did for raoul presenting his pistol threw himself on the leader commanding the coachman to stop porthos seized the coachman and dragged him from his seat grimaud 
already had hold of the carriage door. Raoul threw open his arms, exclaiming, Monsieur le Comte, Monsieur le Comte. Ah, is it you, Raoul? said Athos, intoxicated with joy. Not bad indeed, added D'Artagnan, with a burst of laughter, and they both embraced the young man and Porthos, who had taken possession of them. My brave Porthos, best of friends, cried Athos, it is still the same old way with you. He is still only twenty, said D'Artagnan, brave Porthos. Confound it, answered Porthos, slightly confused. We thought that you were being arrested. While, rejoined Athos, the matter in question was nothing but my taking a drive in Monsieur D'Artagnan's carriage. But we followed you from the Bastille, returned Raoul, with a tone of suspicion and reproach. Where we had been to take supper with our friend Monsieur Baisemeaux. Do you recollect Baisemeaux, Porthos? Very well, indeed. And there we saw Aramis. In the Bastille. At supper. Ah, said Porthos, again breathing freely. He gave us a thousand messages to you. And where is Monsieur le Comte going? asked Rameau, already recompensed by a smile from his master. We were going home to Blois. How can that be? At once, said Raoul. Yes, right forward. Without any luggage? Oh, Raoul would have been instructed to forward me mine, or to bring it with him on his return, if he returns. If nothing detains him longer in Paris, said D'Artagnan, with a glance firm and cutting as steel, and as painful, for it reopened the poor young fellow's wounds, he will do well to follow you, Athos. There is nothing to keep me any longer in Paris, said Raoul. Then we will go immediately. And Monsieur d'Artagnan? Oh, as for me, I was only accompanying Athos as far as the barrier, and I returned with Porthos. Very good, said the latter. Come, my son, added the comte, gently passing his arm round Raoul's neck to draw him into the carriage, and again embracing him. Rameau, continued the comte, you will return quickly to Paris with your horse and Monsieur de Valence, for Raoul and I will mount here and give up the carriage to these two gentlemen to return to Paris in. And then, as soon as you arrive, you will take my clothes and letters, and forward the whole to me at home. But, observed Raoul, who was anxious to make the Comte converse, when you return to Paris, there will be not a single thing there for you, which will be very inconvenient. I think it will be a very long time, Raoul, ere I return to Paris. The last sojourn we made there has not been of a nature to encourage me to repeat it. Raoul hung down his head and said not a word more. Athos descended from the carriage and mounted the horse which had brought Porthos, and which seemed no little pleased at the exchange. Then they embraced and clasped each other's hands, and interchanged a thousand pledges of eternal friendship. Porthos promised to spend a month with Athos at the first opportunity. D'Artagnan engaged to take advantage of his first leave of absence, and then, having embraced Raoul for the last time, to you, my boy, said he, I will write. Coming from D'Artagnan, who he knew wrote very seldom, these words expressed everything. Raoul was moved even to tears. He tore himself away from the musketeer and departed. D'Artagnan rejoined Porthos in the carriage. Well, said he, my dear friend, what a day we have had. Indeed we have, answered Porthos. You must be quite worn out. Not quite. However, I shall return early to rest, so as to be ready for tomorrow. And wherefore? 
why to complete what i have begun you make me shudder my friend you seem to me quite angry what the devil have you begun which is not finished listen raoul has not fought but i must fight with whom with the king how exclaimed porthos astounded with the king yes i say you great baby with the king i assure you it is with monsieur saint aignan look now this is what i mean you draw your sword against the king in fighting with this gentleman ah said porthos staring are you sure of it indeed i am what in the world are we to do then we must try and make a good supper porthos the captain of the musketeers keeps a tolerable table there you will see the handsome saint-aignan and will drink his health i cried porthos horrified what said d'artagnan you refuse to drink the king's health but body alive i am not talking to you about the king at all i am speaking of monsieur de saint-aignan but when i repeat that it is the same thing ah well well said porthos overcome you understand don't you no answered porthos but tis all the same end of chapter sixty six chapter sixty seven of louise de la valliere this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Filippo Joaquin Louise de la Valliere by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 67 Monsieur de Besmaux's Society The reader has not forgotten that, on quitting the Bastille, D'Artagnan and the Comte of de la Fere had left Aramis in close confabulation with Besmaux when once these two guests had departed baisemont did not in the least perceive that the conversation suffered by their absence he used to think that wine after supper and that of the bastille in particular was excellent and that it was a stimulation quite sufficient to make any honest man talkative but he little knew his greatness who was never more impenetrable than a dessert his greatness however perfectly understood monsieur de baisemont when he reckoned on making the governor discourse by the means which the latter regarded as efficacious the conversation therefore without flagging in appearance flagged in reality for baisemont not only had it nearly all to himself but further kept speaking only of that singular event the incarceration of athos followed by so prompt an order to set him again at liberty nor moreover had baisemont failed to observe that the two orders of arrest and of liberation were both in the king's hand but then the king would not take the trouble to write similar orders except under pressing circumstances all this was very interesting and above all very puzzling to baisemont but as on the other hand all this was very clear to aramis the latter did not attach to the occurrence the same importance as did the worthy governor besides aramis rarely put himself out of the way for anything 
and he had not yet told Monsieur de Besmont for what reason he had now done so. And so, at the very climax of Besmont's dissertation, Aramis suddenly interrupted him. Tell me, my dear Besmont, said he, have you never had any other diversions at the Bastille than those at which I assisted during the two or three visits I have had the honor to pay you? This address was so unexpected that the governor, like a vein which suddenly receives an impulsion opposed to that of the wind, was quite dumbfounded at it. Diversions, said he, but I take them occasionally, Monseigneur. Oh, to be sure, and these diversions are of every kind. Visits, no doubt? No, not visits. Visits are not frequent at the Bastille. What, are visits rare then? Very much so. Even on the part of your society? What do you term my society? The prisoners? Oh, no, your prisoners, indeed. I know well it is you who visit them, and not they you. By your society, I mean, my dear Besmo, the society of which you are a member. Besmo looked fixedly at Aramis, and then, as if the idea which had flashed across his mind were impossible, Oh, he said, I have very little society at present. If I must own it to you, dear Monsieur d'Herblay, the fact is, to stay at the Bastille appears, for the most part, distressing and distasteful to persons of the gay world. As for the ladies, it is never without a certain dread, which costs me infinite trouble to allay, that they succeed in reaching my quarters. And indeed, how should I avoid trembling a little, poor things, when they see these gloomy dungeons and reflect that they are inhabited by prisoners who and in proportion as the eyes of Besmont concentrated their gaze on the face of Aramis, the worthy governor's tongue faltered more and more until it ended by stopping altogether. No, you don't understand me, my dear Monsieur Besmont, you don't understand me. I do not at all mean to speak of society in general, but of a particular society, of the society, in a word, to which you are affiliated. Besmont nearly dropped the glass of Mascar, which he was in the act of raising to his lips. Affiliated? cried he. Affiliated? Yes, affiliated, undoubtedly, repeated Aramis, with the greatest self-possession. Are you not a member of a secret society, my dear Monsieur Besmont? Secret? secret or mysterious oh monsieur d'herblay consider now don't deny it but believe me i believe what i know i swear to you listen to me my dear monsieur besmont i say yes you say no one of us two necessarily says what is true and the other it inevitably follows what is false well and then well, we shall come to an understanding presently. Let us see, said Besmont, let us see. Now drink your glass of Moscow, 
dear Monsieur de Besmont, said Aramis. What the devil? You look quite scared. No, no, not in the least in the world. Oh, no. Drink, then. Besmont drank, but he swallowed the wrong way. Well, resumed Aramis, if I say you are not a member of a secret or mysterious society, which you like to call it, uh, the epithet is of no consequence, if I say you are not a member of a society similar to that I wish to designate, well, then, you will not understand a word of what I am going to say. That is all. Oh, be sure beforehand that I shall not understand anything. Well, well. Try now, let us see. That is what I am going to do. If, on the contrary, you are one of the members of this society, you will immediately answer me, yes or no. Begin your questions, continued Besmont, trembling. You will agree, dear Monsieur de Besmont, continued Aramis, with the same impossibility, that it is evident a man cannot be a member of a society. It is evident that he cannot enjoy the advantages it offers to the affiliated without being himself bound to certain little services. In short, stammered Bismarck, that would be intelligible if... Well, resumed Aramis, there is in the society of which I speak, and of which, as it seems, you are not a member. Allow me, said Bismarck, I should not like to say absolutely. There is an engagement entered into by all the governors and captains of fortresses affiliated to the order. Besmont grew pale. Now the engagement, continued Aramis firmly, is of this nature. Besmont rose, manifesting unspeakable emotion. Go on, dear Monsieur d'Herblay, go on, said he. Aramis then spoke, or rather recited the following paragraph, in the same tone as if he had been reading it from a book. The aforesaid captain or governor of a fortress shall allow to enter, when need shall arise, and on demand of the prisoner, a confessor affiliated to the order. He stopped. Besmont was quite distressing to look at, being so wretchedly pale and trembling. Is not that the text of the agreement? quietly asked Aramis. Monseigneur, began Besmont. Ah, well, you begin to understand, I think. Monseigneur, cried Besmont, do not trifle so with my unhappy mind. I find myself as nothing in your hands. If you have the malignant desire to draw from me the little secrets of my administration, Oh, by no means. Pray, undeceive yourself, dear Monsieur Besmont. It is not the little secrets of your administration, but those of your conscience that I aim at. Well, then, my conscience be it, dear Monsieur d'Herblay. But have some consideration for the situation I am in, which is no ordinary one. It is no ordinary one, my dear Monsieur continued the inflexible Aramis, if you are a member of society, 
but it is a quite natural one if free from all engagement. You are answerable only to the king. Well, monsieur, well, I obey only the king, and whom else would you have a French nobleman obey? Aramis did not yield an inch, but with a silvery voice of his continued, It is very pleasant, said he, for a French nobleman, for a prelate of France, to hear a man of your mark express himself so loyally, dear de Besmont, and having heard you to believe no more than you do. Have you doubted, monsieur? I? Oh, no. And so you doubt no longer? I have no longer any doubt that such a man as you, monsieur, said Aramis gravely, does not faithfully serve the masters whom he voluntarily chose for himself. Masters, cried Besmont. Yes, masters, I said. Monsieur d'Herblay, are you still jesting, are you not? Oh, yes, I understand that it is a more difficult position to have several masters than one, but the embarrassment is owing to you, my dear Besmont, and I am not the cause of it. Certainly not, returned the unfortunate governor, more embarrassed than ever. But what are you doing? You are leaving the table? Assuredly. Are you going? Yes, I am going. But you are behaving very strangely towards me, Monseigneur. I am behaving strangely. How do you make that out? Have you sworn, then, to put me to the torture? No, I should be sorry to do so. Remain, then. I cannot. And why? Because I have no longer anything to do here, and indeed I have duties to fulfill elsewhere. Duties? So late as this? Yes, understand me now, my dear de Besmont. They told me at the place whence I came. The aforesaid governor or captain will allow to enter, as need shall arise, on the prisoner's demand, a confessor affiliated with the order. I came. You do not know what I mean. And so I shall return to tell them that they are mistaken, and that they must send me elsewhere. What? You are... cried Besmont, looking at Aramis, almost in terror. The confessor affiliated to the order, said Aramis, without changing his voice. But, gentle as the words were, they had the same effect on the unhappy governor as a clap of thunder. Besmont became livid, and it seemed to him as if Aramis' beaming eyes were two forks of flame, piercing to the very bottom of his soul. The confessor, murmured he, you, Monseigneur, the confessor of the order, Yes, I. But we have nothing to unravel together, seeing that you are not one of the affiliated. Monseigneur! And I understand that, not being so, you refuse to comply with its command. Monseigneur, I beseech you, condescend to hear me. 
and wherefore? Monseigneur, I do not say that I have nothing to do with the society. Ha <laughs> ha! I say not, I refuse to obey. Nevertheless, Monsieur de Besmont, what has passed wears very much the air of resistance. Oh, no, Monseigneur, no! I only wished to be certain. To be certain of what? said Aramis, in a tone of supreme contempt. Of nothing at all, Monseigneur. Besmont lowered his voice, and bending before the prelate said, I am at all times and in all places at the disposal of my superiors, but very good. I like you better thus, Monsieur, said Aramis, as he resumed his seat and put out his glass to Besmont whose hand trembled so that he could not feel it. You were saying, but, uh, continued Aramis, but, replied the unhappy man, having received no notice, I was very far from expecting it. Does not the gospel say, watch, for the moment is known only of God? Do not the rules of the order say, Watch, for that which I will, you ought always to will also. And what pretext will serve you now that you did not expect the confessor, Monsieur de Besmont? Because, Monseigneur, there is at present in the Bastille no prisoner ill. Aramis shrugged his shoulders. What do you know about that? said he. But, Nevertheless, it appears to me... Monsieur de Besmont, said Aramis, turning round in his chair, here is your servant, who wishes to speak with you. And at the moment, de Besmont's servant appeared at the threshold of the door. What is it? asked Besmont sharply. Monsieur, said the man, they are bringing you the doctor's return. Aramis looked at de Besmont with a calm and confident eye. Well, said he, let the messenger enter. The messenger entered, saluted, and handed in the report. Besmont ran his eye over it, and raising his head, said in surprise, Number twelve is ill. How was it then, said Aramis carelessly, that you told me everybody was well in your hotel, Monsieur de Besmont? And he emptied his glass without removing his eyes from Besmont. The governor then made a sign to the messenger, and when he had quitted the room, said, still trembling, I think that there is in the article on the prisoner's demand. Yes, it is so, answered Aramis. But see what it is they want with you now. And that moment a surgeon put his head in at the door. What do you want now? cried Besmont. Can you not leave me in peace for ten minutes? Monsieur, said the surgeon, the sick man, number twelve, has commissioned the turnkey to request you to send him a confessor. Besmont very nearly sank on the floor. But Aramis disdained to reassure him, just as he had disdained to terrify him. 
What must I answer? inquired Baisemeaux. Just what you please, replied Aramis, compressing his lips. That is your business. I am not the governor of the Bastille. Tell the prisoner, cried Baisemeaux quickly, tell the prisoner that his request is granted. The surgeon left the room. Oh, Monseigneur, Monseigneur, murmured Baisemeaux, how could I have suspected, how could I have foreseen this? Who requested you to suspect, and who besought you to foresee? Contemptuously answered Aramis. The order suspects, the order knows, the order foresees. Is that not enough? What is it your command? added Baisemeaux. I? Nothing at all. I am nothing but a poor priest, a simple confessor. Have I your orders to go and see the sufferer? Oh, Monseigneur, I do not order. I pray you to go. Tis well. Conduct me to him. End of chapter 67 Monsieur de Besmaud's Society Recording by Filippo Joaquin End of Louise de la Vallière by Alexandre Dumas